0: what is up everybody i'm back with another edition of the macro insights podcast where i'm joined by the man the myth the legend the team doomberg so if you've been on twitter or read his sub stack or their sub stack you know that doomberg provides excellent excellent insights on everything macro related so we get into opec plus we get into the silicon valley bank we get into a bunch of other macro factors the fed all that kind of stuff and doomberg provides some of the greatest insights there is so be sure to tune in for another action-packed episode and before you go on stop hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to your podcast give it a five-star rating do all that stuff Uh, It really does help the show grow, share it with friends and family, and spread the good word. Doomberg is an excellent guest, and he uh, was very generous with his time and uh, came on the podcast. So please, please, please send this around. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice, should never be taken as financial advice. It's strictly the opinion of Doomberg and myself and is not a reflection of our employer's and should not be taken as financial advice. Now, let's get into the episode. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. And for everybody listening on any podcasting 2.0 apps, such as Fountain and Streaming Me Sats, it is greatly, greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting the show. And if you're listening on anywhere else where you get audio podcasts, be sure to hit that subscribe button so you get the next episodes directly to your feed. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you get to see my beautiful face. Uh, hit that like button and also subscribe to my channel. I've been trying to get that to grow and uh, it, all the support is greatly appreciated. And it helps me bring in you know, a lot of great guests. And speaking of great guests, I have one in the waiting room here. I got Doomberg, probably the most famous green chicken on the internet. Uh, so Doomberg, how are you doing today?
1: <laughs> Brandon, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, so I mean, for those who don't know, you, one like I don't know what you're doing on, on Twitter. You gotta you gotta follow his account and uh, check out his Substack, as you know they put in great research. But why don't you give us a little bit of your background and kind of uh, you know where you cover?
1: Sure. Yeah, um, I'm a Doonberg, uh head writer for the Doomburg Substack, as you mentioned, which is our primary um, livelihood these days. Our primary business. It's a Substack we started uh, two years ago, where a, a small team of of Previously, we were running a consulting firm. We still have some business uh, in that regard, but um, we come from the commodity sector um, predominantly. Um, the Doomburg Substack covers energy, uh, finance, and the economy at large. We, we like to say that we explain complex technical issues to financial professionals in a language that they can understand. We um, publish you know, six to eight times a month. Uh, just put out a piece this morning, so you caught me at a good time. Uh, publication day is always nice because I get that one day to breathe before we decide what we're going to write about next. And uh, so, yeah, it's really been a remarkable run. We we started this two years ago. We're the number one finance Substack in the world. Um, almost a quarter million followers on Twitter. It's been a real whirlwind. And so, um, yeah, it's 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 just tr- truly amazing what can happen in the content creator space in 2023. You know, like anybody could start a Substack. Anybody could start a podcast and and really, it just comes down to your disciplined execution. Um, how much effort you put into it will dictate how much of a reward you get out on the back end.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that—that's definitely an understanding. But I think you know what. One thing that's unique about your substack and everything that you guys cover is I feel like you have like a very in-depth, like broad range of just overall macro topics, which I absolutely love. But you mentioned the energy sector and there was just an OPEC meeting and kind of some, you know, I guess hubbub around that and the oil and uh, gas industry. So, you know, why don't you, I guess, set the stage for us as to what happened in this OPEC meeting and uh, yeah, give us your take on it.
1: Yeah, actually, it wasn't a meeting, which makes it um, all the more surprising. On Sunday, uh, OPEC plus, um, so if you take the OPEC nations and include Russia, Uh, announced effectively uh, a 1.6 million, 1.65 million barrels a day surprise production cut. Um, This comes uh, as a surprise, I would think, to the Biden administration, and it's certainly upsetting to them. It it is a substantial cut, one that the market didn't anticipate. And and as we're talking, oil, you know, WTI is sniffing $82 a barrel from the low 70s last week. And so from the perspective of the OPEC plus nations, the surprise cut had its intended effect, which is a shore up the price of oil. Um, in our view, this um, is really a critical juncture in one of the world's most important relationships, which is that between the United States and Saudi Arabia, which for decades had been really a, a centerpiece focus of U.S. foreign affairs, and, and by all measures, at least from outside observers, um, that relationship is probably at its weakest state that it's been in 50 years. And Um, lots of good reporting uh, in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times in the past few days about how effectively this was a response to uh, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's anger with President Biden for refusing to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, as he apparently promised he would do to support oil prices in this range. And um, this looks like a bit of a petty tit for tat. And um, let's hope it doesn't continue to spiral. uh, But it, it is, I think, you know, the personal Animosity between uh, MBS and and Joe Biden is is something to keep a very close eye on, and um, you know when it comes to political le- leaders, um, I wouldn't underestimate the impact of egos, uh, even superseding national interest.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I hear that a hundred percent, you know, people in power definitely really want to stay in power and kind of keep that control. But I also did see like a tweet. I don't know if it was like a report from the terminal or for or who it was released by, but you know, I saw a, a tweet that said the U S that got a heads up on the OPEC plus uh, production cut plan uh, It was reported by Kirby, I believe. Uh, so, you know, I, I, in your perspective, one, do you do you kind of buy this report? Because it feels like it's kind of like you said, like almost all of the sudden released on a Sunday, uh, not generally a big news day, kind of more of a relaxing day. And uh, yeah, from there, it, it seems like they're kind of, you know, there is these, this tension between the US and the, and the OPEC countries. So, um, you know, do, do you one, do you like kind of buy this report? And like, two, like, what would be the benefit of the U.S. like, you know, releasing this information that's saying that they got this, uh, you know, price cut or production cut um, information ahead of time?
1: Well, I, I would say two things, that that report is almost certainly true and and basically meaningless. Um, you know, if the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia has dissolved to the point where um, a mere uh, sharing of a factual uh, set of actions about to transpire is is the sum total of the negotiations ongoing between the two sides, then That sort of proves my point in my first answer, which is things are at near rock bottom. I mean, uh, you know, for for decades, again, there was basically a deal between the United States and Saudi Arabia, which was the U.S. would um, provide defense and protection to the the kingdom, and the kingdom would ensure a steady flow of oil um, at a reasonable price. And then in return, the U.S. would maintain U.S. dollar strength to the point where um, the sellers of that oil could save or uh, recycle their excess profits into US treasuries and and keep massive amounts of US dollar reserves knowing that their you know their their money would be would would be good and and so um, really starting when the global financial crisis when Ben Bernanke made clear to the world that the US dollar was no longer as good as gold for oil um, we're seeing these changing geopolitical um, trends and um, you know it, it's makes for a fascinating analysis on Twitter it's not Really, our depth of expertise is something we observe and we have some experience in. But um, you know, watching people try to e- either explain this away as nothing or make it into something much bigger than it is uh, is sort of classic what Twitter does, of course. But um, in our view, it's it's important. It's notable. Um, you know, informing that could have been five minutes before the announcement. I mean, uh, technically, they were given a heads up. Okay, I mean, big deal. Um, it's not like the U.S. said, "Please don't cut," and they listened. Um, you know, they, so in, in our view. This is the latest in a series of steps that ultimately we believe is going to lead to some form of a confrontation between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. Um, it's the topic of a piece we're researching now, and um, who knows how that's going to go? Uh, you know, the history of Middle Eastern leaders confronting the U.S. dollar hegemony with respect to oil is not a glorious one for Middle Eastern leaders. Uh, we'll see if 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 you know either cold or hot conflict um spontaneously appears now um it's something that's certainly worth keeping a very close eye on in our view
0: yeah and it, it also seems like you know the At the end of last year, maybe like uh, November-ish time, there was a a bunch of screams on Twitter for, you know, somewhat of an energy crisis. But the U.S. has kind of continually deployed those, uh, you know, the oil reserves and seemingly like essentially depleted those reserves in a sense uh, to try to keep the gas prices down, kind of, you know, try to ease some of that, you know, energy concerns. But it seems like these, uh, you know, with this lack of production, um, you know, maybe uh, kind of uh, almost seeming like ca- kind of cutting out the US in a sense, uh, kind of like like you're describing, like maybe some political tensions rising, uh, you know, with the, the mix of Russia in there and everything like that. Um, you know, do, do you kind of still foresee maybe potentially somewhat of an energy crisis? Like how uh, drastic is the is the uh, you know, I guess the energy situation in the United States and globally j- just because of this situation going on, cutting production. And yeah, like I like I mentioned previously, de- depleting the reserves.
1: So just to give your um, viewers and listeners a framework to put these numbers into some focus. Um, as the war in Ukraine broke out last year, President Biden seeing oil above $100 a barrel and recognizing the peril that that represented to his party's re-election chances in the midterms, Decided to uh, take the Strategic Petroleum Reserve Bazooka and fire it. And, you know, over a hundred and eighty-day period, he was releasing oil from that reserve to the tune of 1 million barrels a day. The cut that was just announced by OPEC is 1.6 million barrels a day, which gives you some indication as to the seriousness of the surprise. Um, here we are, sort of um, with even more you know, um, mandated sales from the SPR teed up and accelerated into April ahead of the driving season. Um, we're at a point where the SPR has never been, hasn't been this low in 40 or 50 years, I forget the exact number. Um, it's less, I think it's less than half capacity. And by the way, there's all kinds of saber rattling between the US and China right now. So um, the point of the strategic petroleum reserve is to be a strategic reserve of petroleum and and not a tactical, Political tool to micromanage the price of gasoline in an election year, um, and so what I what we believe has happened is when Biden flew to Saudi Arabia, he promised that if oil prices got into this range around seventy dollars a barrel, that he would begin the process of refilling the strategic petroleum reserves and thereby putting a floor under prices. And last week, uh, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, who um, my guess is never visited an oil refinery. Or a production facility in her life before becoming energy secretary um, said almost flippantly that it would be several years before they would even begin thinking about refilling the strategic petroleum reserve which to the saudi's ear sounded like a um a reneging on their promise and so um thus the surprise cut came um this is all within the backdrop of what zoltan polzner correctly calls sort of commodity encumbrance where Everyone talks about the oil market being 100 million barrels a day, but in reality, what is the free float of tradable oil? You know, a lot of oil is produced where uh, consumed where it is produced. Now, to your specific question, um, the U.S. is fine energetically. We have the cheapest natural gas prices in the world. Um, we have we are pr- the largest producer of oil in the world. Um, you know, by and large, there's a whole pantheon of countries that will suffer far quicker and far more greatly than the U.S. In fact, NATO. If you drew a circle around Canada, sorry, um, NAFTA. If you drew a circle around Canada, U.S. and Mexico, we are basically fully self-sufficient across all important commodities. Uh, a, a true energy and food superpower. Um, the U.S. will be fine, um, but politically, Biden understands that you know um, what, a, what 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 an energy crisis in the U.S. is is five dollars a gallon gasoline. You know, vast majority of the world is paying way more than that already, uh, even at these prices. And so it's all a matter of perspective and degree. But in reality, the the real risk to us is a sort of further deterioration of the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. to the point where um, things spiral out of control.
0: Yeah, and I, and and I mean, I guess you know that all makes sense. But you know, where I get, I guess, confused in all of this, and uh, maybe you could shed some light, or, or maybe agree with me on, on it, or or whatnot. But it seems like there's always been a push, you know, especially for the the current party in power, uh, for for more of the green energy to kind of get away from you know oil and natural gas and these kind of you know energy sources. But you know, with uh, the amount of I guess exported oil, kind of uh, depleting and seemingly like the movement away from a lot of these you know oil production plants uh, in the united states uh, to try to get more quote-unquote green energy um it seems like you know that that is not exactly the smartest move with everything going on um you know I, I get that the united states in the end is probably going to be fine and we, we can be more self-sufficient but it seems like it's it's uh you know the current party's making it a little bit more difficult for the united states to be more self-sufficient uh, one, do, like, do you subscribe to that theory? And like, two, you know, what do you th- uh, have to take or think about all of these you know, green energy policies and kind of the push towards that?
1: So <clears throat> we've written extensively on all of these topics and just recently on um, Biden's decision to approve the Willow Project in Alaska, a piece uh, I believe was titled Between a, a Rock and a Cold Place. Um, Biden is stuck. In a vice of his own making so on one side of that vice is the radical environmentalist mathusian um, you know uh, sector of his support base um, these people who are fundamentally anti-human and anti-energy and anti-life um, they believe nature um, needs to be preserved for nature's sake regardless of the negative impacts on um, humans other than themselves of course um, but you know that's on one side of the vice but biden knows that's a a small minority, but a very loud minority of a support base and also a huge threat to the rest of his support base who are sort of blue collar workers, union, um, you know, financially disadvantaged and so on. Um, And he is an old school politician. We know him as the senator from DuPont uh, because DuPont was the biggest company in Delaware and Biden spent decades protecting the various interests of uh, DuPont uh, while he was in the Senate. And and that's the lens through which we view his playing a footsie with these radical environmentalists. And so Um, Ultimately, when push comes to shove, um, Biden uh, threw the environmentalists under the bus time and time again, just by releasing the Strategic Petroleum Reserve last year to manage the price of oil, I mean, what did that do? It reduced the price of gasoline, which increased demand, which, uh, in the eyes of environmentalists, increased CO2 emissions than would have otherwise been. Um, And so, um, you know, the, the problem with the green energy transition is it takes energy to transition, and that energy has to come from fossil fuels and the price elasticity demand for fossil fuels is such that um, small shortages lead to huge prices and small gluts lead to huge price decreases and this is forever thus Um, and so we'll just keep repeating this until um we either get new leadership or current leadership becomes more sensible to the actual physics of what's going on Uh, but if you look closely you can see biden when push comes to shove um ultimately will will throw the environmentalist movement under the bus in favor of broader sort of uh, lower energy prices for US consumers. Even this Freeport LNG export terminal was really, wink, wink, not allowed to be turned back on until winter was over and it was clear um, that we wouldn't need the excess natural gas. And so uh, this is is, very plain and clear to see to those who would know what they're looking for.
0: Yeah, and and that that makes sense uh, because you know it does seem like the I guess the narrative around the you know Democratic Party is that they're more for green energy, but it seems you know like you said that, that Biden has been kind of uh, I guess pushing back against that narrative so to speak uh, for his time in office, which you know in, in the end of the day it, it it seems like it's almost necessary. So I don't really understand you know the transition or you know the full banning of uh, elector or. Uh, you know um gasoline powered vehicles and like california and some of these other places so i just don't really see that transition going you know any smoother than uh than it's uh, i guess currently going and kind of putting a hard stop on you know uh all gasoline powered vehicles just doesn't make sense i mean if we we've seen uh electric vehicles have to get uh you know gas powered chargers in order to to charge their batteries so it just like i said it just hasn't really uh Resonated with me, and it seems like there's been a massive push, um, but it, there hasn't been too much action, I guess, taken towards that. But I want to transition a little bit here into the Fed and kind of the job they're doing. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it open ended for you, as you know, Jerome Powell has kind of you know rapidly increased uh, interest rates and then kind of slowed down a little bit the last two meetings by only raising by 25 basis points. But you know, we've seen some bank failures and other things like that. So. You know where do you kind of see this all going? And uh, you know, I, I saw you had an article too called Don Jerome. So uh, how do you how do you feel that the job that uh you know Jerome Powell is doing?
1: So we've written about the banking crisis from two separate lenses. Uh, one, the banking crisis is kind of cover for the things we wrote about in Don Jerome, which is basically the kneecapping of the crypto industry by choking them off at the fiat um, rails. And it's no coincidence in our view that among the first banks to fail were the The two banks that did the most um processing of dollars into and out of the crypto ecosystem namely silvergate and um, signature bank of new york but also the venture capital bank silicon valley uh, bank that um you know basically uh, did business with all manner of vc firms that participated in a, a variety of crypto pump and dumps and and uh dropping bags on on retail shareholders um and so that those banks were um, basically wiped out in the early innings isn't a surprise to us, um, especially Signature, which was just sort of a, the analogy we used in Don Jerome was the uh, classic um, baptism scene at the end of The First Godfather, where the new Don, Michael Corleone, makes very clear that the promises to keep the peace that his father made died when uh, with his father, and uh, he takes care of all the family business in one go. Um, they kind of took care of Signature Bank almost as an afterthought on a Sunday evening, which was a truly remarkable. And it's all part of a broader push against the crypto industry which is of course what we wrote about even this morning about the latest uh, with finance and so on so that's one angle the angle that's more concerning to us um, is is the potential impact on regional banks and and we wrote a piece called regional fallout you know we live in flyover country in the us and we do all our banking at a, at a regional bank our a, a small community bank actually and um, that relationship between banker and business owner um is critical to the functioning of the u.s economy and if 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 jerome powell and secretary janet yellen and president biden and his team screw this up um they run significant risk of putting sand in the gears uh, of the u.s economy you know um if all we have left are the too big to fail banks those banks don't know how to lend to small businesses don't care to actually don't need to to make money They make money by being too big to fail and so um you know, we, we described a, a personal anecdote in the piece before we were uh, just before we were ready to launch Doomburg. We invited our, our, the person who runs private banking at, at our bank, our, our, our credit union in this case. and She got in her car and drove across town and sat in our office and listened to our business plan and gave us lots of pointers and knew what to expect from the timing and magnitude of the cash flows once we turned on paid for Doomburg and thereby satisfying her know-your-customer uh, anti-money laundering obligations directly in person um, we know her very well uh, we do basically all of our banking with her and if that relationship that human to human touch point goes away how are small business owners going to get the financing they need the working capital they need the banking they need to keep uh, keep small economies uh, the small business part of our economy which is a huge driver of, of jobs and growth um, going I, we would never get that service from JP Morgan um, and, and, and and nor would JP Morgan care to do it as I said and so, the big concern here is the speed with which interest rates have risen, is causing sort of mark to market losses uh, at these small banks. And then the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Janet Yellen's pathetic performance in front of Congress when asked by uh, James Lankford uh, about whether all deposits in the US at small banks would be safe. Um, that risks catalyzing a run on small banks that would be very devastating uh, to the
0: economy. So, those are the
1: two angles, Brandon. We talk about the crypto angle and we talk about regional banks because those are near and dear to our hearts. So.
0: Yeah and I mean I agree with you 100%. I mean over 46% of all United States jobs are through small business. So, you know, I mean small business is a, is a huge, huge integral part of, you know, the American dream, owning, owning your own business other things like that, but I want to play a little devil's advocate with you here just, you know, to kind of toss it out there because, you know, it seems like Silicon Valley Bank, you know, was funding a lot of these, whether you want to call them like crypto casinos or whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, a lot of these companies that maybe, you know, weren't there. I guess the greatest ideas in a sense, where they were really volatile business. Uh, maybe they were more like techie kind of companies where they they were kind of putting off making a lot of money, you know, for a, a longer term. Um, and then, you know, at the end of the day these companies had to go back to either venture capital or other things to try to raise. And unfortunately, because interest rates are tighter, you know, venture venture capital was then tighter and kind of closer to the vest with, with lending and giving money in that sense as well. So um, do you think like in the short term, I guess that it might be, I guess a little bit better just because like it'll avoid maybe some of these like, outrageous tech companies that are coming in with crazy ideas and crazy evaluations but then get you know a bunch of marketing dollars behind them and are able to kind of I guess run somewhat of like a pump and dump like we've seen with like FTX and some of these others
1: so there's a lot of um, lots to unpack there so first of all the the mania in private market valuations that occurred in the post covid uh, lockdown world uh, was truly spectacular we participated in it we do a lot of private investing we observed it we passed on a lot of deals that were wildly overpriced. So there is some uniqueness to the Silicon Valley Bank. Failure, they had a highly concentrated deposit base that was particularly susceptible to a run. Um, Peter Thiel and Y Combinator and a few high-profile Twitter accounts played, I think, a disgraceful role in catalyzing the downfall of the bank that's at the beating heart of their own ecosystem. Talk about you know sawing off the, uh, the trunk of a tree to save a branch. Um, but nonetheless, it happened. And the real risk isn't um, uh, any sort of specific follow-up from that failure. It's the risk of contagion. So if if small depositors, if depositors at small banks believe that their funds aren't safe, and um, they will move them, and they will especially move them when you look at the the disparity in rates between money market or Treasury Direct uh, accounts and what banks are paying uh, depositors uh, to keep their money in the bank. And so um, that's the real danger. Um, the, the collapse in the valuation of um, unicorn startups, it was always going to happen. Um, and that's part of the cycle of, of venture capital. You know, when you're in a mania, the only thing that matters is deal access and deal flow. And now the only thing that matters is cash flow. And so you will see a, a series of uh, really good startups um, be forced to raise at distressed levels. And those will be remarkable investment opportunities um, and if you have powder dry then um, you know they will get funded and we're seeing that in, in our own private deal flow um, you could buy great businesses at a much better price and as Warren Buffett would say um, what 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 more does a, a long-term investor uh, want than that and so um, I would separate the two but for sure you know this um, highly concentrated deposit base at Silicon Valley uh, certainly combined with their mismanagement of the duration of their bond portfolio led to a, a potentially unique situation. Our our main fear is Janet Yellen's fumbling of it um, could um, you know reduce confidence from the system and banking is nothing uh, if not um, a game of confidence.
0: Yeah, for sure, and and I and I agree though that the downfall of regional banks could be be very detrimental just yeah like you said you know losing that personal relationship uh, can really hurt like some small local economies whether it's you know a restaurant owner or you know some just kind of general business that makes a you know city or town unique Um, so you know I'm definitely worried about that in a sense as well but um, you know on the flip side the reason why Jerome Powell is you know essentially raising rates is to kind of combat inflation um, and, you know, through that, it's it's strengthening the dollar compared to other fiat currencies. So I want to kind of dive into that aspect, um, because, you know, it seems like Jerome Powell has, yeah, obviously raised interest rates at a historic pace, and they're they're slowing down a little bit, but infl- inflation is still, you know, at, at 6% uh, based on the last CPI print, um, who knows where it will be, but I'm sure it'll still be above the. Um, you know, that 2%, uh, quote unquote, goal that that the Fed has every, uh, you know, every, uh, every year, but Um, in that note and uh, on that vein, um, you know, I guess what can Jerome Powell or how do you see this playing out essentially? Do you think like, because there's somewhat of, you know, maybe a unique scenario when Silicon Valley bank, where it was too over leveraged and, you know, didn't allocate properly to its bond portfolio. Um, but it showed some cracks in the, you know, banking system. Do you think because of that, maybe Jerome Powell might, uh, change his role and, uh, you know, maybe pivot, I guess, quicker than than he's been explaining, you know, throughout this, uh, throughout every single meeting? Or do you think, you know, he's going to keep kind of holding true and, uh, you know, keeping his foot down um, when it comes to raising interest rates and trying to combat inflation?
1: Yeah, great question. I, I have a slightly um, potentially uh, different answer than you may be expecting, one that we derive from our friend Mike Green, Um who was a guest on one of our Doomberg Pro webinars? Here we have a pro tier where once a month we either bring on a great guest or we do a, a fixed presentation ourselves for our pro tier subscribers. And he made an interesting call uh, several months ago on a Doom Zoom, as we call it, um, where he said that uh, paradoxically, Jerome Powell's raising of interest rates wouldn't really kill inflation in, uh, in the manner that uh, historically one might expect. And his rationale, which is one that resonates with us, is Um, back to the the, the lens of energy. Um, High interest rates means less capital for energy exploration and development, which means less BTUs produced, which means higher energy prices, which means higher inflation. And so, um, counterintuitively, there's no question that raising interest rates will flatten the economy. Look, if deposits leave small banks, small banks stop lending. If small banks stop lending, the economy stops working. That's what we're seeing right now. Um, And so, you will end up with a stagflationary scenario, which is something that we've been calling for, um, for the better part of a year once, the price of coal exceeded the price of oil on an energy content basis last year, which was a unique you know, historical anomaly we, that we could find no, no precedent for. Um, what that told us was the world was in desperate search for BTUs and didn't need the finished goods that you could get from oil, like all of the downstream chemicals and materials and, and so on. Um, and so uh, in that respect, perhaps um, in trying to fight inflation using the tools of yesteryear, uh, Jerome Powell might be exacerbating it. And so uh, we shall see. Um, we, it's hard for us to imagine a scenario where inflation fully abates and yet we have uh, sort of echoes of an ongoing energy shortage, either real or or contrived by our geopolitical adversaries like OPEC. Um, ultimately, uh, we have been advocating since the Russia invasion of Ukraine that the proper response was not to try to sanction russia's volume but to flood the world with energy crash prices destroy his revenue base and crush inflation all in one go we nobody listened to us of course and why would they were a green chicken and they're the president um, and his team but um in our view if the, the quickest way to kill inflation is to have a, a glut of energy and we're on the opposite path to that today and that this is why we're seeing ppis in the double digits 20, 30, 40% in Europe because they you know, uh, committed uh, suicide on on energy policy. And th- this is what happens. And so um, that that transfer function of higher interest rates into less production. I keep a close eye on the production in the US shale patch. This is something that uh, Gehring and Rosenzweig have been writing about for a very long time. And I, we believe that they will ultimately be shown to be correct. Um, that, that's what we're looking at um, as far as like the, the direct policy implications of Powell's inflation hikes. Interest rate hikes, sorry.
0: Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, that that's uh, actually an interesting point in perspective, because, you know, I've always yeah, over Twitter, you know, everybody kind of shouts from the moon that, that uh, you know, the 60% of, you know, monetary uh, supply, the M2 money supply has been dumped into the system since 2020. And that's the obvious reason for inflation. But, you know, in reality, I think it's, it's shutting down the global economy because of COVID. And, uh, you know, not really, I guess, producing that way. And, and in a sense, that's all kind of tied to energy. Energy, right. I mean, yeah, if energy is more expensive, driving, you know, food from the farm to the grocery store is going to be more expensive just in turn because everybody's got to make those margins. So it does make it make a lot of sense to stagflation ar- argument. But, you know, I guess what does that economy kind of look like? Because, you know, I guess stagflation in a sense to me, seems like it's not going to be, you know, very much growth or, or anything like that. Um, and we're just going to kind of stay where we're at. Um, is that kind of, I guess, the theory that you subscribe to? Or do you think, you know, due to stagflation and really no growth that, you know, maybe the economy will take a, a turn for the worse and it'll be, uh, you know, a recession or, you know, maybe a, not not quite a soft landing?
1: So the definition of stagflation is um, slow, no, or shrinking growth combined with high inflation. And that equation means reduced standard of living. So that there's just no circumventing that. And in fact, as we have argued, um, relentlessly, (laughs) since the beginning of Doomburg, energy is life. And your standard of living is literally the amount of energy you are allowed to waste personally, because disorder is spontaneous. And in order to uh, impose order on your local environment, you have to waste heat. And so um, if we have an energy shortage, um, that has to manifest itself in lower standard of living. And in this case, um, you can dress it up in economics terms like stagflation, but ultimately that's just the transfer function or the transmission mechanism of a poor energy policy into reduced standard of living. And the longer this goes on, um, the more we run the risk of political upheaval. Um, and, and population is, you know, they, they tend not to like it when their standards of living uh, shrink. And uh, we're seeing the rise of populism in Europe, uh, Italy some a lot more populism in germany than is making it to the press Um, the uk uh, we're seeing the riots in paris uh, and across france Um, this is all just symptoms of the greater disease of a lack of serious thought about energy and just to put some numbers around it again just before COVID hit the us was producing 13 million barrels a day of oil and change and now two years three years later um, god it's been three years three years later um, we're producing just over 12 million barrels a day, and then for the past year, we were releasing, or past eight to nine months, we were releasing a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, closing that wedge. Well, if we don't have much more to release from the reserves, and production stays flat at 12 million barrels a day, or begins to roll over, and OPEC uh, stays true to their commitments to cut production on a go-forward basis, um, it's it's not out of the question that we could see 90, 100, 110, 120 dollar oil again. Um, and in that scenario, with, um, you know, banks under crisis and no longer lending because of elevated interest rates, um, you could see stagflation, um, which basically is, again, a shrinking economy and rising prices. And and that would be a disaster for Biden and the Democrats heading into 2024, for sure.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, this makes sense. But for me, you know, I, I see that, you know, c- kind of heading into 2024, that, Um, There might be some more political pressure from Powell to essentially just like pull back the reins and essentially reverse course at almost the same historic pace that he, you know, uh, raised interest rates simply because of, like you said, you know, that that four year cycle, the political pressure that might be under wraps. um, So um, if we do that
1: without loosening the regulatory reins over the oil and gas industry in the United States, then look out because you're going to see massive inflation. Um, without concurrent new drilling and exploration or investment by the big oil companies. You know, at the same time that we're talking about all of these impacts of uh, you know, interest rate hikes and so on, you have California, which is something we're going to write about, hopefully, with this insane new uh, cap on uh, refinery profits. And, and you know, I saw Elizabeth Warren was raging against um, price gouging by egg makers, <laughs> who are basically price takers selling the ultimate commodity um, and yes, the price of eggs has skyrocketed again because of a variety of policy and and sort of um, uh, errors uh, in that regard, and and a few natural uh, issues as well, like um, uh, disease and so on. But um, you know, the price of eggs is is up threefold um, since uh, the pre-COVID days, and and so you know, if we realize that we've gone too far, crushed the banks, lending is stuck, and the economy is contracting, and Powell pivots, but we still have the um, environmentalists um, you know, suing every oil project development um, and appealing all the way to the Supreme Court at every opportunity and suing again on a new, uh, on a new basis. You know, and we don't actually increase our energy supplies, well then if we, we pivot, if we don't have any energy, look out speculation again. So the real issue is, is again, um, is, is how do we set up a framework of policies that support the production of excess energy which by definition is excess standard of living. And then how do we equitably share that across the population? And um, what we're seeing right now is rising income inequality, social unrest, lack of energy production and rising interest rates, uh, which is doing nothing to help the energy situation.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, it, it does seem like very doom and gloom going forward, you know, especially just based on, on these policies. And it seems like they're all very reactionary, but, Um, You know, you did, uh, generally speaking, in a high inflationary environment, people try to go to, you know, various, you know, quote, unquote, hard assets, whether that's, you know, kind of real estate or gold, which is what I kind of want to dive into next, because you had a piece called, you know, golden handcuffs, and you've In this piece, you kind of compared, uh, you know, Bitcoin to gold in a sense. And we've seen, you know, Bitcoin kind of, you know, float around and get up a little bit to, you know, I I haven't checked the price in the past couple of days, but 28,000-ish range from the lows of 17. But gold has been, I guess, you know, relatively, it seems like stagnant for, for the year's time, especially, you know, during massive inflationary environments. And it seems like, you know, a lot of the gold bugs been yelling from the clouds that, you know, in inflation, uh, you know, gold will kind of raise and and get more valuable in a sense. And it doesn't seem to have been the case for the past couple of years. So, um, you know, how do you view gold these days? And uh, yeah, where do you kind of see all that, that market going?
1: So as we're talking, gold has gone on a $40 an ounce run in the past, I don't know, hour and a half. And it's trading at $20, uh, $2, $2,020 per ounce right now. Um, I would say, Gold is an interesting one. Like we are gold bugs, and the piece we wrote, "Gold and Handcuffs," was a bit of a cautionary one, which we can get into if you'd like. But um, to your specific question, um, if you price gold in Japanese yen, or you price gold in Turkish lira, or you price gold in, you know, uh, various currencies that have gone under sort of hyperinflationary type. Uh, <laughs> um, Periods in the past several years, you'd be very glad that you own gold in those economies, and and from their perspective, gold is doing what it was meant to do. And even here in the U.S., I mean, gold um, relative to other assets has performed quite well. Uh, we don't view gold as an investment; we view gold as part of our saving strategy. You know, we we make money in fiat because we live in a fiat world. We save money by buying hard assets, as you described, like land and collectibles and gold, and then we invest privately where we can affect the outcome. That's sort of our financial strategy here at the chicken coop, but um, I would say, you know, gold is, has had a pretty impressive run here um, in 2023. And, and um, if people are waiting for a sort of a dramatic collapse um, where they'll be able to cash in uh, all of their riches because they were smart and own a lot of gold, like, I, I don't think that's how it's going to play out. Um, but I'm just pulling up the chart as we're talking, you know, if we, if we look at the year-to-date chart for gold, it, it, is, uh, it is pretty pretty impressive run. Uh, yeah, it started the year at just over 1,800. It's 2,000 now. That's what, 12% um, year to date. It's just doing quick guess. I mean, that's, that's not a bad run considering um, how the markets have done. So.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it seems like, you know, like you said, as, as you described it, it started kind of at the beginning of this year, but we've also seen kind of some wonkiness in the markets when it's come to the beginning of the year. I mean, I know January, we saw Tesla up like 90%. Um, and we saw, like you know, a lot of I guess runs in, uh, you know, various companies, kind of more risky, at, quote unquote, risk on assets and other things like that. But yeah, like you described, it seems like gold has kind of been steady and doing pretty well this year, uh, especially to start it through through Q uh, Q1 here. Um, but you mentioned something about kind of like you know, almost like uh, essentially like the you know the the Powell and the Fed have been. You know, weaponizing the dollar, but people are kind of, you know, I guess, flooding to to gold. It seems maybe not to to get rich, but using it as like savings technology. You know, as you did kind of describe. So, do you see that market kind of, I guess, developing back to, uh, you know, what I guess it was previously, quote unquote, known for, like, you know, more as like savings technology and kind of more of that hard asset, um, where it's going to be, I guess, more of a popularized investment or savings technology, however you want to describe it. Um, then it's kind of been in this, these past couple of years as like people have just almost like seemingly FOMOed into whatever was the next hot name, whether it was like AMC or GameStop or something like that.
1: So, I would view the YOLOing into um, sort of what we call greater fools trades more of a socioeconomic um, uh, genesis to that phenomenon than a, a pure economic one. Um uh, there was um, you know a lot of boredom in the lockdown era. there was also a lot of um, cash being sent directly to consumers, which is of course the cause of the, of the burst of inflation um, that we, we've seen as, as along with the energy crisis. Um, and, and I think that um, you know in the middle of a mania, people who are drawn to assets like gold almost never participate in such manias right And so then they fear, they, they feel like their asset isn't performing. Um, and it takes a crisis for your asset to perform on a relative basis. And um, here we are at the, the potential beginnings of a crisis, and gold is outperforming. And so um, you know, we have a general rule, which is that we cannot invest in something that we believe to be a greater fool's trade. Like We limit our private investments to businesses that produce dependable cash flows, and in the worst case scenario, um, pay a good dividend. Um, we just could never buy AMC because we think a bunch of other suckers are going to buy AMC and buy it back from us at a higher price. Um, that's what casinos are for. And if I was going to go to casino, I would learn poker because at least that's a game of skill. And I would have a fighting chance at earning some extra cash as opposed to just giving the house my rake every day. So, um, But there's a whole army of people for whom uh, Matt Levine has a great series of columns in this regard, for whom um, this is a form of entertainment and gamification. In fact, Robin Hood's app, the entire basis of its popularity is that it embeds gamification into what had traditionally been the serious business of buying and selling securities, and um, and when money becomes a game, um, you know, there's another sort of lens here, which is uh, to many people, um, you know, the, the the growing income inequality forces them to make uh, larger and larger risky bets because, um, you know, the, the whole phrase "yolo" is is you only lose once. Um, what 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 what's your alternative? Um, hey, if I get lucky and I I catch you know tiger by the tail and I can convert twenty thousand dollars into eight hundred thousand dollars and then quit my job and and you know, retire the fire lifestyle, then why not? You know, it, it's a, it's a swing at the fences. It's, it's it's indistinguishable from a lottery ticket, really. Um, when you think about it. But again, where we are and and the savings we have and the sort of work that business we're building and so on, it, it's just not prudent for us to participate in such manias. We we also avoided many of the manias in. Private market as well, although it's very difficult to do. You know, you see these startups um, where you actually know the founders and you don't have a super high regard for them and you pass on the deal. And then two months later, you read in Crunchbase that they raised money at a billion dollar valuation. And you're thinking to yourself, like, there's no way that money isn't going to be torched. Um, so, you know, it, it is what it is um, to the question of gold. Um, I, you don't put money in gold hoping to get a 20x return on your money because if you get a 20x return on your money, you got bigger problems in society to deal with than what to do with all of your excess uh, relative wealth.
0: Yeah. And that, that, that makes all, all the sense in the world, you know, it's, it's more of like a safe haven, but I just thought it was interesting that you kind of, you know, compared Bitcoin to, uh, to gold. I mean, that's kind of like the narrative, right? It's Bitcoin is, is a sense like digital gold. Right. And um, but, you know, usually uh, just in general speaking, you know, you see the, the number go up on Bitcoin is, uh, you know, like to tenfold at the, at the very minimum compared to what, you know, you see from gold, but, you know, like you said, I guess gold bugs, in a sense, are not really looking for that volatility. They're not really looking for that. They're looking for more of, I guess, uh, savings technology in, in a sense, opposed to you know, the, the number go up in, in fiat terms. But
1: Well, here's you know. how I view gold. Uh, if, if I have 20 gold eagles in my safe today, um, that's $40,000 roughly. Um, 20 gold eagles today can buy you a, a decently trimmed midsize SUV uh in 15 years if I hand uh 20 American Eagles to one of my children they will be able to go out and buy a well-trimmed mid-size SUV in 15 years um that's my view of what gold role is um uh, you know um in the piece um we say um that the overlap and the Venn diagram of the reasons why people own Bitcoin and the reasons why people own gold are pretty comprehensive it doesn't mean they serve the same function uh, but both sides would like some of their value outside of the system. Both both, both sides um, both sides view their chosen um, uh, vehicle to express that view as as having a certain moneyness about it. Um, in some ways, Bitcoin is is more interesting because it has uh, the possibility to be a, a, a more effective medium of exchange than gold. Um, on the flip side, um, it is. At least impacted by all of the crypto fraud and the price swings and the volatility of Bitcoin far, far exceed that of gold, which makes it less attractive um, um, from that perspective. But in the piece gold and handcuffs, we did say, by the way, like this thing that many gold bugs are are wishing for, which is that the BRICS develop an alternative to the US gold that the US dollar that involves gold uh, as a key part of the settlement of international trade, runs the risk of gold ownership being banned in the US. It's happened before. The same uh, tactics of Operation took 2.0 uh, that the government is, is directing towards the crypto universe, could very easily be redirected to the gold universe. And um, and that piece, which did quite well for us, actually, and, and triggered an awful lot of um, comments and emails and, and discussions amongst our subscribers, um, was a real, I think, wake-up call for people that, hey, wait a minute, you know these, these uh, precedents that are being set against the crypto crowd, hey, I'm a no-corner, so it doesn't matter to me. Yeah, it does matter to you, because those precedents become... Uh, the gun that points towards you in the in the future and if vladimir putin and president g and mbs get together and suddenly the price of gold spikes to $4000 or 5000 or 6000 an ounce you can bet your bottom dollar pun intended that the us government is going to take action against gold owners
0: yeah, that, that, that's fair 100%. And I kind of want to dive into your last piece that you that you mentioned at the beginning of the show that you dropped today about price discoveries, because it gets into, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, crypto fraud that we've seen here you know, in the past couple of days or not a couple of days, a couple of months or so. You know, we've seen the FTX with, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried. But the real winner in all of this has been CZ of Binance. And there's been, you know, a lot of, you know, it seems like rumblings, a lot of, you know, regulatory kind of crackdown. And, you know, a lot of things kind of happening to Binance, but for some reason they're still chucking on. I mean, I'm under the theory that I think that, you know, eventually that they're going to, you know, you know, probably probably fail in in some point in time i'm not sure when that is but they've become essentially the biggest player in the game majority of bitcoin trading is on is on their platform and other things like that so you know i guess how do you view that and uh yeah why don't you get into your to your piece about uh price discoveries
1: yeah so uh price discoveries is a great title we you know we start all our pieces with trying to figure out what a great title would be and um the main point in the piece, which we've been making for a very long time, is Bitcoin should not be priced in U.S. dollars. People should not view the quote of Bitcoin on their screen trading right now at twenty-eight thousand one ninety-one or one ninety-two, as we're talking. That is not U.S. dollars. That should be viewed as Tethers. Um, Bitcoin trades in Tethers, and Tethers, if they're backed one-to-one for U.S. dollars, and you could easily exchange your Bitcoin for Tethers for U.S. dollars, then okay, maybe you could quote um, the price of Bitcoin in Tether, but uh, in dollars. But but you shouldn't today and one of the reasons why we think you shouldn't is because we believe that finance um and ftx and other exchanges um have the ability to print effectively collaborate with tether and print these tokens out of whole cloth and then move the price of bitcoin around uh, to anywhere they want and um and they do and the, the 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 genesis of the piece the the reason why we wrote it was this explosive 74 page complaint, a civil complaint against CZ and Binance um, that dropped last week from the uh, Commodity Futures uh, Trade Commission, which had previously kind of been viewed as sort of an ally to the crypto world. And then they dropped the hammer on CZ and Binance. And when you read that um, charging document, it reads like a criminal indictment. And we would be shocked if charges don't swiftly follow and Binance doesn't collapse. But in that document, um, it's very clear the US government has insiders collaborating access to a massive treasure trove of information. They know exactly what's going on in Binance. Um, and they're prepared to do something about it. But in that document, the two things that jumped out at us is, is Binance routinely trades options denominated and settled in Tether uh, for digital assets like Bitcoin and trades against its clients, knowing full well what their client's order book looks like. But also, perhaps more damningly, um, they have several hundred in-house prop desk accounts Um, presumably with unlimited access to Tether so they could take the opposite of any trade they want without having to worry about margin calls and so on. And they just essentially are running a pilfering operation against their client base. Why anybody listening would have any assets whatsoever uh, on anything related to Binance after knowing and reading, knowing all this and reading that document, you know, ultimately it's on you at this point. and, uh, you know, and, and we suspect that uh, Binance won't be long for this world and that uh, someday we'll be reading that CZ has been arrested um, because it's very clear that that's the intent of this document. Now, whether he committed a crime or not, all of these are just allegations. And he, you know, especially if it's a U.S. charge, has the right to presumption of innocence. But boy, does that document ever read like um, all of the things we've been writing about for the past two years and all of the heat that we've taken from the crypto world and some of the Bitcoin maxis. Um, As we said in the piece, we won't be holding our breath for an apology, but the things we've been writing about for the past two years sure sure do seem to be uh, coming to pass here.
0: Yeah, and I mean, uh, when it came out, like the FTX kind of scandal, it it came out that sbf had some uh group message with some of the other big names of the exchanges called market makers and and things like that so i mean you know in in the end it doesn't seem like it's super surprising and you know part of the i guess the bitcoin maxis rally call is to get bitcoin off off of exchanges because of you know things like this right because you know essentially they're um you know just trading against their own uh, clientele and, and other things like that too so um, yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like there's some some sketchiness going around with CZ, but um, I, me personally, I'm kind of surprised that he's made it this this far as we've seen, you know, multiple other exchanges kind of, um, you know, I guess fall through the wayside, go bankrupt, what have you. So, you know, I guess in a sense, why do you think that he's been able to, I guess, make it this far? Um, it does seem like his time is slowly running out, but, um, you know, what has what has kind of allowed CZ to, I guess, uh, keep keep running and operating in business, although you know we've seen FTX, Celsius, BlockFi, some of these other ones kind of fall by the wayside.
1: So it's a great question, and um, we have a friend um, who is uh, a famous short seller, Mark Cahotas. I'm, I'm sure that's a name that you may be familiar with. And um, Mark um, has has a theory uh, about um, these crypto exchanges that they are essentially money laundering operations, and that they arose. In the aftermath of the collapse of Wirecard, which is this famous German fraud that was essentially a money laundering operation operating in plain sight uh, uh, in the DAX thirty, and um, the volume of trades on these offshore exchanges really only began to explode as Wirecard collapsed. And ultimately, there is a market for money laundering. <laughs> like the 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 global the size of the global criminal market is is huge. It's measured in hundreds of billions of dollars. And um, that money needs to go somewhere. And, and uh, when FTX collapsed, it, it all seems to have gone to Binance. And so um, it'd be fascinating to see where that money laundering goes um, uh, after Binance inevitably collapses. Um, time will tell. But um, Cohodes's view, which was an interesting one, um, is that, that this is basically FTX is not a, a Fraud, it is a money laundering operation wrapped in a crypto fraud uh, with a crypto wrapper, uh, as you would say. And, um, and it's a pretty interesting way to look at it in our view.
0: Yeah, I agree. It'll be interesting to see how this uh, full case kind of all plays out as well. I'm sure, uh, you know, a lot of people on the Internet will be following that very closely. But uh, you've been very generous with your time this morning. So I want to give you the opportunity. Why don't you uh, tell people, you know, where they can find you and what you all have going on?
1: Yeah, Brandon, I really appreciate it. Um, the primary place you can find us is at doomberg.substack.com. Um, as I said, that is where we publish six to eight times a week. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at doombergt, although we are sort of de-emphasizing Twitter as it becomes ever more toxic. Um, and um, if you subscribe for free, um, you will get the first sort of third of all of our pieces, and maybe one of them will eventually entice you to jump over the wall and 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 jump to paid. Our paid subscribers get all pieces. And also, they get to comment that we have a very vibrant comment section, which we um, you know, close to only paid subscribers, which means you know, if you want to troll us, you have to pay us for the privilege. Um, but uh, really fun, really great work of our life and um, really fascinating to, to research these pieces. You know, We learn an enormous amount. We have such a great network of experts who help us as we research these pieces. And so it truly is a, a wonderful way to live. We've built a great business out of it and couldn't be more blessed. Um, we wake up every day Counting our lucky our lucky stars that we were able to create this franchise on a full cloth in two years, and um, we intend to savor the success and um, and to continue to earn the the business uh, of our precious subscribers. So thanks for the opportunity, and and best of luck to you as well, Brandon.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, everybody go check out Doomberg Substack. It's one of the best in the biz, obviously, you know, the number one financial Substack. And yeah, I mean, a great, great Twitter follow as well. So follow him on Twitter. I'll have all that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, Doomberg, thanks so much for coming on, man.
1: Thanks, man. Have a, have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you too.